This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today, a very, very fire-filled, excellent program. We've got Clint Murphy live in the studio. He is the host of Pursuit of Learning Podcast. He's also a real estate investor. He works as a CFO for a development company in the city. Not on in that capacity, though. He's on in the capacity of zero to Kokomo, an incredible investment journey in the lower mainland here. This is such an exciting episode, not only because Clint was down in Kokomo Studios, but I feel like we covered a lot of subjects that we don't usually talk about on the show. And also he's thought so deeply and strategically over a long period of time and made some very big moves in the city. It's just a really, really exciting conversation. It is. We talk everything from his investment thesis. And his evolving investment theses. Yeah. And how you can actually work with your own thesis and when you should actually reconsider your thesis. Exactly. It's it's incredible. We talk about retirement planning with actual tangible takeaways from this conversation. We talk about how to calculate and mitigate risk today, the pursuit of learning, how to learn, really. I feel like Clint is an expert in learning. Yeah. And last but not least, we talk about skinny Fire and fat fire. So fire for those uh, people that that are unfamiliar, it's financial independence, retire early or retirement early. I think it is. Yeah, I don't. Uh, some, one of those two. We'll let one Clint, version. Let's of, Clint do the do the explaining. But yeah, yeah, skinny fire, of course, something that's not super appealing. Clint's going to explain it. Fat fire, on the other hand, I think is something we're well familiar with. You specifically, because <laughs> I, I when I think of fat fire, I think. I think of the calendar, the firefighter calendar edition that you were involved in. <laughs> Remember the calendars that you was for charity. It was for charity. <laughs> Just you and suspenders, suspenders. and uh, fire retardant materials. Uh, I think that was, that and a was... host of fire retardant materials. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, that's what I think of when I think of fat fire. I don't think that's what Clint's talking about, but yeah, uh, I, I think I do have a couple copies of the calendar left. Yeah, so so leave us a review. No, don't. Uh, but here, here's here's what we're going to do is we're going to talk to Clint. Before we get to that, Matt, where we might post the calendar photos is on our Instagram. You should definitely be checking out our Instagram because it is growing leaps and bounds. Leaps and bounds. You know what? And the exciting thing this week that a lot of people were commenting on, first of all, two things. And this first does not have anything to do with the uh, VREP Instagram account. Hands fast, I've now heard from, and I said this last week, and more people have come out of the woodwork, Hands Fast may be the most popular guy in the city. Right. Everybody knows Hands Fast. Everybody was surprised to hear him on the show and reaching out. It's crazy. Past clients. One guy reached out to me who I know and said he tried to rent an apartment off me a couple of years ago. Uh, like, <laughs> that, that, it's crazy. Everybody knows Hands Fast. But the VREP Instagram as a secondary note here. 
there's a renovation going on and you posted some before and after pictures that I think were really, really got some great feedback. We got a lot of feedback. It's interesting. And it's listed so right now. It's actually listed right now. Yeah. It's uh, it was a one bedroom. We weren't actually really even looking for a project and uh, something came up in Mount Pleasant that kind of presented an opportunity at the end of last year. We did a renovation. It took us about six to eight weeks. And interesting time to be renoing places just with supply constraints and timelines. But I think it ended up looking really incredible. We posted the before and after photos on our Insta stories. I think I'm going to actually add it to the uh, the main grid. The main uh, grid, yeah. yeah sure. So people can actually see the before and after photos. So if you're not following us on Instagram, definitely check out our Instagram at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm just thinking here, like this could be a future episode, this flip. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I like to call it improving homes. Right. Because this was a this was a, a, an incredibly it was no, a it really wasn't a rough. Fluff. It was it a was, it was a labor of love. For it sure. was um it was a a rescuing, I would say, of a property that was <laughs> sliding downhill <laughs> pretty pretty fast. But some uh, would call you a hero. Some would <laughs> not not all heroes wear capes. But but it's listed right now, Adam. So right. I think we wait till to you know, so we have a, an end to this story. Yeah, uh, is is my thought on that, but I think it could be it could be well worth a, a podcast episode. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe it will be. We'll see how it goes, but uh, I'll keep you posted regardless. Without further ado, Matt, though, this is an incredible, incredible show. Let's not lose with the Clint thread. Murphy. Yeah, um, and I honestly, this has uh, been one of my favorite episodes in the last call it a year or so. I've said that a few times lately. I feel like we just keep hitting it out of the park right now. Is with our guests. And uh, Clint Murphy is no exception. This guy is, he's a mover. That's right. That's and, right. Uh, yeah, anyways, it's, it's a great show. Can't wait for it. Without further ado, Clint Murphy. Enjoy. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This week's podcast is brought to you by Hawkeye Wealth. Yeah, past guest fan favorite Justin Smith and his team. Fantastic guy, Justin Smith over at Hawkeye Wealth. Hawkeye helps our clients invest in various private real estate investments, such as residential and industrial development projects with an aim to diversify their portfolios and achieve better risk-adjusted returns than they would find elsewhere. Yes. You, you, you really dragged on that elsewhere. Elsewhere, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, always when I think of Justin, I think big network, great due diligence, and a deal finder. If you're interested in learning more of what they're doing over at Hawkeye Wealth and the opportunities that become available, head over to hawkeyewealth.com. That is hawkeyewealth.com. I finally got it. Hawkeye, like he's a he's a deal finder. He finds the deals. That's hawkeyewealth.com. Thanks, Justin and the team. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. Okay, so we're here with Clint Murphy, host of the Pursuit of Learning podcast and real estate investor. And uh, yeah, Clint, good to have you in the studio. It's great to be here. 
my friend I was chatting with him told him I was coming and that I'd been listening to you guys for a long time. And so he said I had to use longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Glad to be in here with you guys. No, yeah. Thanks for taking the time, Clint. It's exciting to have you. Maybe for, we were talking before we came into uh, the studio here, but for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, you bet. So background for me is married, father of two young boys, 13 and 10. I've been in Vancouver for the last seven years, spent most of my life here. I've spent a bit of time in other provinces and two years in Bermuda. And by day, I'm a CFO of a real estate development company. And by night, I invest in real estate. I am a writer and read a lot of books. And I host the Pursuit of Learning podcast. Nice. I got to ask Bermuda. Yeah, we went and this is part of the journey with real estate because we sold our house to go and we left the province in 04. We had just been married and we're both chartered accountants. So we went down to Bermuda to work for KPMG for two years. Ah, we've actually, yeah. I've had friends that have done that. That's, uh, that's enticing. Yeah, you, you get paid at the time, US dollars, no tax, higher salaries. So we looked at it as a great way to save some money, make some money, come back. And we didn't expect real estate to go up about 70% while we were gone. Do you work like insane hours in Bermuda though when you're with KPMG? Or is it island time? No, it's closer to the first one. (laughs) Everyone thinks you're going down for sunshine and beaches and and some tropical drinks, the Kokomo lifestyle, if you will. But while you're down there, you're working long hours. So you don't actually get out to the beach, which is a little bit of a downside. You get out usually when people come to visit you from Vancouver. Right. That's when you go to the beach. Right. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so you're both accountants. It's interesting. You'd often, you know, hear of one accountant in a family, but you're, we've got about what, about 10 in our family? We're, we're a family yeah. of accountants, yeah. uh, except for Matt and I. But uh, <laughs> can you talk about like, so accountant become real estate investor. Can you talk a little bit about why real estate? Yeah. So if I take, take a step back for me, it was all about, we, we had always loved real estate. So even before marriage, I mean, we've been together since 95 and we had always talked about flipping homes, about buying real estate. We had just never pulled the trigger. And then about 12 years ago, I was in a rough situation with a job. And the realization I had, that was when I found financial independence. And you've probably had some people on when they're talking about the Kokomo lifestyle. The idea being, how can I make sure that I'm never in need of my job? Doesn't mean I don't want to do it doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. It just means I don't want to be dependent on someone else paying me. And for me, the way out of that was real estate. I had been working now in real estate for four or five years. I had seen people grow their wealth on a very large scale. And you'll often read people say that real estate is one of the easiest ways for people who aren't geniuses to get rich. And it's true. It's a long, slow way to get rich over time. And so that was the idea was to build wealth through real estate. And I'm just interested in kind of the genesis here. So you're with KPMG in Bermuda. You start working for a real estate company and then kind of through being in that environment, you you kind of come to real estate or was it 
you know, this deep fascination with real estate that kind of led you to work for like in the real estate industry? Yeah, I'd go, I'd go with the second one. I mean, deep fascination for real estate. You're in Vancouver, you're seeing the numbers, every cocktail party, dinner party you're at, everyone talks. I mean, you're both realtors. Everyone talks real estate all the time. And so I thought if I leave the firm, I want to go work for a developer. And so at the time I left and I went to work for a company called West Group. And while I was there, I was doing some investing in stocks. And here's the other reason I love real estate. When you're investing in stocks, you have a little too much ability to uh, make some of your own decisions. (laughs) (laughs) And they're usually very bad decisions. And so with real estate, you buy it, you hold it, you never look at it, right? If anything you buy more or you take out some more leverage on it so you can buy more, but you don't really, you're not really looking to flip. You're Mm -hmm. looking to hold it long-term and you can't get in your own way. That was why I started buying the real estate. The going into real estate, you're right, was, was about the passion, was about loving it and wanting to pursue it as a career. And, and so just thinking about, you know, one thing before we went live that, that you said that, kind of jumped out at me was we were talking about a potential sale that maybe we'll talk about later, but didn't happen. But one of the things you were hoping for was this kind of takes two years off your for your Kokomo plan, right? Like clearly you have a deep, well thought out plan for how to get to financial independence. I'm just wondering, maybe not necessarily, I'd love to hear about the plan and how you kind of structure that and think about that. But to start when you started thinking, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to buy an investment property. Can we talk about how you got your start there? And then did you have a plan in place? Were you thinking, okay, this is my, we have a 15 year plan, a 20 year plan. Here's how we're going to get from A to to Z or is it, or do you just buy an investment property, do quite well on it and say, Hey, maybe this, maybe we should consider real estate (laughs) further. Right. Yeah. It's all of the above. And so when we first started, it was, and we can dive into the details because that was the impetus of it all was a big win on a townhouse we had in Olympic Village. And then once we had the capital from that, we went into a couple units. We did well there. And then I started working in a way where because I was now researching financial independence, I created the cash flow, the net worth statement, not only today, but looking out the next 10 years and said, what happens if I buy piece of real estate every year over that time frame. What happens? Because you start to realize, and, and you've had guests on the show in the past who talk about the three ways of getting income with real estate. We have our cash flow, and we'll talk about the fact that we don't really we don't cash actually flow. Have cash flow. <laughs> we don't have cash flow. <laughs> that one crossed right. that one off. <laughs> We're slightly negative. Yeah. And, and I can talk about how I view real estate now. I've come to a bit of a realization that some listeners may understand more because you can equate it to equities. And so so I can talk about that with you if you'd like. And then the second one is you have your principal pay down. And the third one is capital appreciation. So one of my realizations was even if I'm putting a bit of cash into these properties every month, when you take the principal pay down, I'm getting a big win. And then even if you only assume 3% appreciation, in the real estate, when you build a big enough top line, that's massive. So for example, if you built a a $10 million portfolio and it's moving 3% per year, 
you're going, your net worth's increasing $300,000 a year without capital appreciation. So one of the realizations a lot of developers have is the power of leverage. And they build their portfolios as large as they possibly can so that small wins are magnified. I still want to, and and as much as I'm tempted to just jump into the the plan, I, I want to yeah. keep, keep going with the origin story here. Yeah, so okay. you have this realization that you never want to be kind of tethered to a job working for someone else. And you host a podcast called The Pursuit of Learning. Mm-hmm. So how do you dive into this idea of financial freedom? Like what what were some of the things you did early on to kind of set yourself up for for winning? Oh, that's a great question. So the very first thing I did was I found the blog, Mr. Money Mustache. Oh, yeah. And you guys have probably (laughs) heard of him. (laughs) And at the time, I go deep into things. You'll probably catch that as we go. I read every blog he had wrote from the origination of his website until the date that I found it, which was probably four or five years and hundreds of blogs. And I read every one of them over the course of two weeks. Then I found the guy, uh, Budgets Are Sexy was another guy I found. And then through them, I started to find more and more and more. And within a few weeks, I was writing blogs on financial independence. I I had never tracked my net worth in my life. I had never looked at cash flow. I just relied on my partner. She was pretty good at that stuff. And all of a sudden, I was deep. And as soon as I got deep to your origin story, when we started, the numbers were pretty small. And I want to say it was the power of the budget, but it was really the power of owning a townhouse in Olympic Village when the market went on fire. So for the first time ever, I'm tracking net worth. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing it double over the course of three or four months. And then it's up 4x. And I'm thinking it's the power of me tracking it, but it probably, <laughs> it probably wasn't. Hey, you're also like, hey, this is fun tracking this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is easy. <laughs> and what I realized, though, was, hey, wait a second. I'd never thought about a HELOC, to your point. And all of a sudden, I'm reading how to do these things. We have a big win. And I said to my wife, we should take out a HELOC and invest in more real estate. So we did that and we bought an apartment in the False Creek Flats and we bought an apartment in Metrotown. And so those, between the purchase date and construction completion, also doubled in price. One of them we assigned along the way, the other we still own today. And then used those proceeds to buy more real estate. So it was it it just became a cycle of accessing the equity and then growing it into that next purchase. And are you doing and just for our listeners that maybe newer newer to real estate, HELOC, home equity line of home credit. Home equity line of credit, yes. So pulling the equity out of the property, <laughs> refinancing or or having a, a home equity line of credit attached to your mortgage. So you're now investing that back in, and it sounds like you assigned one of the properties, but generally speaking, has that generally been the model that you've been using is, is to buy, pull the equity out? It's almost like a, like a burr without the rehab. Yes. And to some extent, that's been the model. We've also done significant savings of our salaries. Once we realized the financial independence thing, we largely capped our lifestyle at that point. So our careers continued to progress, but we didn't spend 
the additional money. We were able to say, hey, we're pretty happy with our lifestyle today. Let's make this the top. Let's not really go up, and we probably have, but let's not go much above where we're at so that we can retire sooner in life. Right. And most people can't do that. Speaking from experience, I've often thought about capping my lifestyle. And um, now he drinks $9 coffees. Yeah. <laughs> just who he is. It's all is. avocado toast. <laughs> <laughs> a good avocado toast. You can't argue with it. It's not Starbucks. It's not avocado toast that's going to get you there. It's increasing your earnings, cutting down on the big expenses, and then investing the rest because I love Starbucks two or three times a day. <laughs> what, one thing that strikes me is, so this all starts, if I understand, kind of you come back into Olympic Village when you made the realization, hey, we can use the HELOC. This is the year that this realization was made. Yeah. So when we returned to Vancouver, it was 07. We couldn't afford to get back into the city, which is where we were when we left. And so we moved out to the Burbs, to Coquitlam. You know, me personally, I thought I'd destroyed my family with the decision to move out of the province and we'd never get back to the big city. And then when the Olympics happened shortly thereafter, it was a bit of a ghost town. And so there was a developer who was pre-selling a development and they dropped the price in order to move forward with the project. Developers have to hit a certain amount of pre-sales in order to get to construction start. So we were able to flip from the Coquitlam to Vancouver at a comparable price. Now, part of the reason we were able to do that was we bought the pre-sale in 2010, didn't close until 2013, so the townhouse we were in in Coquitlam, we had three more years of lift. So we were able to get in at about a 75K differential, and they were largely a similar size townhome. So immediately coming into Vancouver, there was a big equity win of about 60% on that townhouse. And so we were able to access that. That would have been 2013. 2014 when we moved in there. Mm -hmm. So it's all really been over the last eight years that we've been able to do this journey. And so, okay. And I'm just thinking here, 20, 2013, you, you come to this realization, hey, we should use this equity and, and the HELOC. You buy uh, something in the False Creek Flats and Metro Town. It sounds like you assign one of those. That's right. Um, Presale. It strikes me that presale has been one of the one of the key kind of components to your journey. Is that the case? And are you still kind of excited about presale? That has been the case. Yes. <laughs> and so the the next step was I've always had what I like to say people should do is to have an investment thesis, and your thesis has to change over time because the market changes. And so my thesis was apartments in the city. And those were going through the roof. And so in 2017, 2018, things started to get pretty choppy in the market. Things didn't look great. You guys would recall 2018, 2019, a bit of blood in the streets. And my thesis started to shift. And what it went to was townhouses in the valley. And so in 2019, we put deposits on four townhouses in the Valley, two in Abbotsford, two in Surrey. Two of those have closed 2019. Two of those close in June of this year. And so we've had them under 
the ones in June will have had them under contract for three years. And over the last three years, there's been a lot of appreciation in those because the other thing we did in that thesis was there's less and less townhouse land similar to 20 years ago when you would have looked at single family. And so the goal was to buy the largest townhouses I could. I didn't know COVID was coming, mm-hmm. but gosh, the biggest blessing to that investment thesis in hindsight. Yeah, this is interesting, right? Because townhomes in the Valley, thinking back to 2018, 2019, there was all sorts of government intervention on the demand side. The market was super frothy in 2017. I know I think condos did 30% that year. I feel like you were maybe not unique, but that shift seems early to me. Can you talk about what led you to change your thesis? For sure. And it'll be the same driver as to why my thesis is different now, right? So if you, going back to earlier, I talked about you can look at real estate the same way you do as equities, right? So people have probably heard of the FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google. Those are your high cost, high appreciation stocks. I tie that to real estate in the city, apartments, right? Going up 30% in a year. Right. No cash flow. Then you have your blue chip stocks. So you get some capital appreciation and maybe a little bit of cash flow. I looked at that as townhomes in the valley. Then you look at your dividend stocks. So they cash flow. We don't really have that in Vancouver. Maybe back in the day, if you went out to Chilliwack, you'd probably have to go out of province. You'd probably have to go to Calgary or Edmonton. Thesis today, that's probably where I go and where I would go. And I can explain why in a bit. But the first one was realizing we've just had 30% lift in all of these apartments. And that's the market that's just been the most frothy. And so then you look at it and you say there's bands between the product type. We have single family homes, then we have townhomes, then we have apartments. Once one product moves up to a certain level, you're going to say, well, why would I buy that when I can be in the bigger one? Sure. When townhouses are up, why would I buy the townhouse when I can be in a house. So I looked at it and said, okay, one, townhouse land is just is going away. Two, apartments have been more frothy. Three, the city has been more frothy than the valley. And so the combination of all of that made me realize, I think where we're going to have the wins is the valley. Part two was, if I want to be a landlord, I don't really want to deal with a one-bedroom apartment where I've got turnover all the time, I've got people partying and not taking care of it. I want to rent to a family. I want to rent to a mom and dad with one or two kids who value that property and will take care of it and will be there five plus years. That was part of the goal. So when I combined all of that, the thesis said, go to the Valley. That thesis is no longer in play for all the same reasons, but in reverse. And okay. And so... I'd like to talk about how the thesis is changing. But before that, in the Valley, it sounds like they were all pre-sales as well. They were, yeah. And so I'm curious as to why, you know, we were still in a pretty low interest rate environment uh, when you bought those pre-sales out in the Valley. Why stick with pre-sale? Was that just a function of being in the industry or does that form part of the thesis? Yeah, part of the thesis, if I look at it, if there's no significant differential to the price today 
for the pre-sale relative to the for-sale product that's in the market. And right now, pre-sale is actually trading at a pretty significant premium to for-sale, right? So it would seem odd for me to buy pre-sale today unless we think there will be significant price appreciation. And then what it comes down to is you're able to put your deposit down on the real estate, but not close for three years. So if you think the market's at a low point, and in 2019 I did, I felt like, oh, this has been this has been a rough two years. And things have to shift. People love it here. One of the best cities in the world. Immigration's high. Interest rates, great shape. Just look at everything and it says, long-term, believe in the market. We've been down now for two years. Not going to close on these things for three years. That's five years. Mm-hmm. I think they'll be up. Right. If we say to each other, where do we think prices will be in six months, a year, three years, we'll all probably say, well, I don't know. Like it could be up, could be flat. But if we say 10 years, if we say five years, the longer we go, the more likely it's up. Mm -hmm. And if I can ride as much of that curve with only the deposit down, then the returns will be much higher. That was the math that I would have done on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think, and and just thinking about that time, the premium was not there that's there today right well uh, and, and that's but especially out in the valley yeah and in surrey i think that that's the at least from when i've looked at surrey pricing recently it seems like yeah the gap between resale and pre-sale that exists today didn't exist back in 2018 2019 now just thinking about this thesis and how it's transforming again yeah i'd love to hear what you're thinking right now well, you look at it and we, we do that same analysis that we just did. I like to look at two things when I look at where and what product, right? One we talked about is the bands between the three product types and what product's been moving the most relative to the other two. The other is geographic circles. So we look at Vancouver, then we look at, you'd probably say, Burnaby, you might throw Tri-Cities into there, and then you're going a little further, you're going out to Surrey, you're going out to further locations, and you sort of draw the the rings, and you say, where are the prices moving in those rings, and where are they moving in product type? And through COVID, most of the lift has been further out, and most of it has been in single-family homes and townhomes. Right? Apartments are now moving really well there and selling out quickly. So the, the thesis is ever moving, right? right? But where you haven't seen a lot of movement over the last three years is apartments downtown and apartments in False Creek Flats slash Chinatown. So I look at it and I say, what's happening over the next 10 years? We have the hospital going in. We have the viaducts coming down. Prices haven't really been moving for three to five years in that area. Mm-hmm. That's probably where I would buy. I would buy apartments in Chinatown or I would buy apartments in False Creek Flats. And the rents are high. The and rents the, and are the rents comparable are to anywhere downtown. So you're looking at it saying, hey, I'll get in now, recognizing I've got probably five years till the hospital's in, viaducts are down, areas cleaned up, 
And the more people move in, the more the hospital comes, the more we take down the viaducts. And when you look at the development plan in that area, a lot of that land's already owned by some of the bigger developers. Mm -hmm. So you would expect that they'll do pretty nice greenways, pretty nice public spaces. And so the the long-term win that you'll probably get in that area, I think, would be high. So if I was going to invest in Vancouver today, that's probably where I would go as an individual. Here, I thought you were going to say Calgary. Well, that's, <laughs> that, that is my personal plan because I've realized the downside of my approach is I get a lot of capital appreciation. But if I want to retire someday, I need cash. Yeah. And my assets don't really provide that cash flow. So if you think about Edmonton, you can buy in certain areas an eight-unit apartment building for the same price as a townhouse in Surrey. And so if I'm an investor and I want cash to retire someday, I have to start looking at, well, what would those investments look like? Mm -hmm. How could I outsource the property management, the refurbishment, and just collect the rent in the mail, get my dividend checks? That's where I need to go is to dividend real estate, if you will. So Calgary, Edmonton, and we're starting to see young people move from here to there. My nephew, my niece have both moved in the, in the last couple of years, one of them last month. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the kind of chasing affordability kind of component, thinking about kind of Ontario, at least through to BC, Alberta right now is the, the most attractive place. Because it actually has, it seems to have energy that other places don't and potential, whereas in it's still really cheap, right? That's a, I mean, or at least comparatively speaking. Well, and that's the biggest downside to this whole discussion we're having is, is it's great to win in real estate as it relates to your long-term wealth accumulation in, in your retirement strategy. But the downside is the lack of affordability it creates for our own children and for young people in the city, right? right, It's problematic for them to be able to afford real estate. And a lot of them, you talk to them and they say, well, there should be a cap on how many homes people are allowed to buy. Mm -hmm. But it's doing the same thing that happened in 2017. It's just trying to attack the demand side. Like if, if I'm buying a second home and I'm not in it and I'm, I'm not having anyone in it, well, and I, under, I understand that rationale, but if I'm buying that home and I'm renting it out to a person and it's, it's reasonable rent, it's, you know, a good property manager, well, well maintained, then I'm adding to the supply. I'm not doing something that is creating an unaffordable city. Right. That is simply lack of supply. And, and when you think about that 2018, 2019, like the new home starts... I don't have the stats in front of me, but maybe you could speak to this. But the the attack on demand really led to, you know, the people that are building houses and supplying new homes in Metro Vancouver to pull back. And there was a couple of pretty sparse years there. So it was interesting because I would say we we had good starts, but what we didn't have were the pre-sales, right? So the reason you had good starts was developers would have said, hey, things are pretty hot right now. That usually is in advance of them not being hot. So let's bring some sales forward. Mm -hmm. Let's sell what we can, and then we'll build it. 
And so 2018, 2019, you would have seen some good construction numbers, but what you weren't seeing is people pre-selling towers, right? You guys would see that with what you do is the pre-sales dried up. And that is a precursor to what's getting built two or three years later. Mm -hmm. So even though the market was slow, construction was underway to be delivered probably 2020, but then there would be less construction 2021, less 2022, which you start to look at it. And and this, this was, now that we talk about this, this was part of the thesis for the townhouses was we're 2019, the sales have dried up, the demand's still there. At some point, the bubble's going to burst Mm -hmm. and people are going to go on a buying frenzy. I thought it would be 2023. COVID came, it sped it up two Mm -hmm. or three years. All of a sudden, people wanted to buy. When I purchased those homes, the idea was that we would have the, well, the inversion of a bubble, I guess, in 2023, when the supply side shocks wouldn't be enough to soak up the amount of demand that was still out there. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, I, you know, and maybe this is a, uh, we're premature with this direction, but I kind of really want to get into the actual Kokomo plan here and getting into, I'm sure you're a spreadsheet guy. I can tell just talking to you, but, um, but I, I, I do feel, I feel like I kind of want to unpack it and then, and then get a copy of it and then copy it. But um, it, 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 it sounds to me like now what you're doing is you're transitioning into higher cap rate markets where you can get some cash flow. If I understand correctly, do you do this via HELOC or do you, are you going to start unloading your your BC properties. What does this look like transitioning? And then can we talk about maybe, well, let's let's start there and then let's and then let's unpack kind of the the, the plan, the plan. And, and and literally how you're organizing your thoughts, I think in for the sure. two, five, 10, 15 year plan. Okay. Yeah. So for for those who may not know the Kokomo plan or the often referred to as fire or financial independence, early retirement. I thought it was Kokomo, actually. Yeah, I like like Kokomo. uh, We'll tell you the acronym later. (laughs) And and that's how I've, uh, well, I'd always been listening, but I uh, heard the Kokomo lifestyle on the way up to a Soyuz and then uh, sent you you guys an Instagram while I was on the water. (laughs) We started chatting. So there's a few different ways people approach fire. One of them is you just live as lean as possible. You save up a bit of money and then you keep living lean. They call that lean fire. Doesn't appeal to me whatsoever. Yes, I capped the lifestyle, yeah. but I capped it at a pretty pretty high number yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want to go backwards. Right. So they often refer to that as fat fire. So you're going to continue to live a decent lifestyle that you enjoy, but you need a bigger nest egg to do it. And usually what they look at is they call it the 4% rule. So you can draw down 4% of your capital over time without damaging your ability to stay retired. In my personal situation, I never intend to retire. I have a lot of things I want to be doing that would generate income. I just don't want to be dependent on them generating income. And so I want to get to a spot where I can have a certain number of years before they have to make money, right? So the way I refer to that, let's call it a Kokomo pivot. And so what I would do is I would look at it and say, for the second half of my life, 
this is what I'm going to do. So for the first half, I've been an accountant. I've done well at that. I only did accounting because my wife suggested it. I was a psychology and English major, and she said, you should do something that'll get you a job. So I switched to accounting. (laughs) Hindsight, uh, probably not the right thing to do. But I'd like to go back to that side of things down the road and continue to write, have the podcast, be a coach, be a consultant, some equity investing in real estate investment with some people I know. And so that would be just a different lifestyle. And I could afford to take some shots at it through the financial independence I'll achieve through real estate. And thinking about the plan, so spreadsheets and everything else, how long does this plan, is this like, uh, it sounds like every four months, at least at, at a certain point when the market was on fire, you're calculating your net worth. Is this something you're revisiting? Like, do you have the one sheet that you're looking at every morning type thing? Or are you have a two, five year, you know, you revisit every six months? How do you kind of structure this? this? Yeah, it's great. I take a pretty, you're right, like a very detailed approach. But it's, once you create it, you don't actually have to look at it that often. Because what I did was I said, okay, At the time that I built it, let's call it a 10-year plan. I said, okay, well, if here's where I want to be in 10 years, these are the five or six different areas that I want to be successful in. What do I want to be doing? And then I created, let's say, being an author. I said, okay, what are four or five things I have to tick off in order to achieve that? What education requirements, if any, do I need? And then turned that into a plan. So looking at Stephen Covey's Begin With the End in Mind, I drew me in retirement and said, these are the six things I'll be doing. But to be successful, I need to be taking steps all along that 10-year journey. And so I broke it all the way back. And what Stephen does is he calls it chunking, right? First, you say, okay, well, if that's where I want to be in 10 years, what do I need to do this year so that if I hit it, I'll hit that in 10 years, come up with a one-year plan. Then say, okay, well, let's break that down by quarter. Let's break that down by month. Let's break that down by week, all the way down to ideally daily habits, right? So if podcasting is something I want to do in the future, how can I be successful in that now? We were talking just before we came on, you guys are over episode 300. It took a while before you were able to build that out. Sponsorships evolved over that time frame, right? You've got the new, you've even got the new, um, this is not real estate investment advice at the beginning. <laughs> then, so it's, it's changed for you guys. And so what I'm doing is saying, okay, the goal is to have X money from this venture 10 years from now. What do I need to be doing today to get there in 10 years? That's two or three of the pages in the plan. The other ones that I don't really look at are the cash flow. So I have cash flow monthly for the next year and then by year for the next 10 years. My wife manages that piece. What I tend to manage is forecast net worth statement over the next decade. And I'm always focused on how to grow the net worth. And then I work with her to say, hey, new thesis, here's what we're going to do. You need to come up with cash. (laughs) And that becomes her job is to figure out the cash. And she has over the years done some amazing things to get cash for us, you know, including when we bought that townhouse. And I guess one of those apartments 
and even today, like we have MBNA zero percent interest credit cards that we've been carrying a pretty significant balance for the last decade. And we work with Kyle, who you guys know. And every time we go to get a mortgage, Kyle will tell us, hey, uh, the bank wants you to pay off these credit cards. And we're like, oh, we need to explain. Like, we can't. <laughs> those, those are 0% interest. That's free money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to keep those, right? And so having a plan on how to use those so that you don't trigger the retroactive 20% interest is just something we manage through lines of credit and personal secured and unsecured lines. So I, I'm just trying to think here. So you, you've got, so you're, you're basically distilling it down to the daily, the daily habit, like a series of daily habits. Yes. That is that like, you're that's right. Going through. And so is net worth, is that kind of what you're working your way backwards from? When I first started this, I looked at it in three ways and I, I set this goal a while ago and I didn't even realize I'd done it. But step one was focused on assets, right? So we talked about the power of leverage and it was get the top line as high as I can. Right. So that the principal pay down and the capital appreciation would be significantly adding to the net worth every year. So step one was asset-based. Step two, which I'm on now, you're right, is net worth-based is let's get the net worth to a specific number because using, again, that 4% rule that they talk about, that calculates the number that I need in my retirement. So right. you take what you spend per year, you either divide it by 4% or you simply multiply it by 25, and that tells you how much net worth you need to be able to drive to your number. Right. So my my current focus is the net worth. And then step three once I hit that net worth number, just to be comfortable, it will be focusing on cash flow. So net worth's great, but if it can't drive cash, like if you, mm -hmm. 4% rule only works if you're actually able to draw the money out some way. Sure. If it's all tied up in real estate and I don't want to sell it, then you can't access it. So then it's focusing on cash flow and that that drives the conversation of going let's say, to Alberta and purchasing some apartment buildings. And you asked how you do that, right? You said, do you, do you sell or do, or do you do, do HELOCs? One of the problems we have in Canada is, is the taxes, right? If we had what we have down in the States, you could do a 1031 exchange. Right. You could just 1031 all the townhouses mm -hmm. and go <laughs> every, buy apartment every, buildings. Every podcast in the States... Every episode's 1031. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the, it, it's the greatest thing ever, I think, to incent better landlords, right? Because if you know that you can trade your real estate, you'll keep it up better. You'll probably paint it. You guys, We drive by some of these buildings that look like they haven't been maintained in 30 years. Mm -hmm. If you had 1031 exchanges... You could flip that for, for a bigger piece of property. And so you'd probably have better upkeep. You'd have better landlords. You'd have more transactions. You'd have more trades. So I actually think 1031s would be very good for tenants. I think it would produce a lot better rental stock in the city. Because right now, there's really no incentive for big landlords to maintain some of these buildings because if you look at the way you're allowed to increase your rents, you're not even allowed to cover your costs right, right now, right? You have inflation is your cap, but all of your costs 
for your building are running higher than that. So mm-hmm. your ability to maintain it's pretty low. But if you could 1031 and move into a, a newer building, someone would take yours, they'd upkeep it. It's just, you know, I could be wrong on that, but that's something I've thought over the last five to 10 years would be good for us. Interesting. I'm curious why in, you know, everything we're talking about makes sense. Why residential? And have you, have you thought about commercial real estate? That's a great question. The, I think it comes down to a few things, right? It comes down to what you know, right? So most of my career has been in residential real estate. I grew up pretty poor, lower middle class, I'd say. By the time I was in high school, mom and dad were doing a fair bit better the last few years of high school. But I'd never never seen commercial real estate. I'd never worked with it a little bit at West Group. I'd only ever owned residential real estate, and it's all I'd ever talked about, all I'd ever read about. And so I, did, I didn't have that experience. And so that's probably the main reason I never approached it. And I also think from a capital requirement perspective, it probably would have been a lot higher for me to, to need capital to buy commercial real estate. And right. each time I bought homes, I had just enough cash right. to buy the home that I was <laughs> buying or, or not quite enough, actually, guys. Well, this, this actually makes me think of, you know, the, the kind of three-part plan here. The first being grow your asset bases as large as you can, which makes a lot of sense. But in relation to, to what you just said and in relation to, you know, I got to get the line on this credit card that you're using as well. But somebody out there is probably thinking about risk mitigation and how you think about that and, and yeah, how you think about that, I guess. Is that something, you know, because to pull the trigger on a single property often, you know, even if it's for yourself, we see it every day. It's a difficult thing for a lot of people to do, let alone to grow a portfolio kind of in leaps and bounds over the course of eight eight years, right? Like two two townhomes in Cloverdale and two townhomes in Abbotsford all within a very small stretch. Like that's that's a lot of belief in your own model or yeah. your own thesis, I should say. Yeah. So the and on that point right there, and then I'll dive in dive into to what you said, uh, Adam. My number one rule for people in life that where I see them fail is if you want to succeed at investing in in growing your wealth, you have to do your homework, you have to do your research, you have to come up with a thesis, you have to be convicted, and then you have to take action. And so you usually see people fail at each step along the way there. And so they don't do the research, they don't do the homework. It's not as if I'm coming up with these thesis is without talking sure. to people in this industry and saying, hey, what do you think? Hey, what do you think? Reaching out to people who have 10, 20 years more experience than I do and saying, what are you seeing, right? You just sort of hear someone say, oh, I think townhouse land is, there's less of it or there's less of this or there, and I'll, you just file that away. Right. You hear someone talk about the valley relative to the city, you file that away. And then once you have the thesis, if you're not convicted, right? A lot of people have an idea, but they don't take action on it. And so if you have the idea, if you have the conviction and you take action, that's where you'll have the asymmetric wins or you could have the asymmetric losses. Totally agree. That could have happened. And I think when I talk about my real estate, it can come across like, wow, you're flying close to the sun. 
Icarus, you're going to get burned. The wings are coming off. He's <laughs> that, That's not how I took it, <laughs> right? but I'm just thinking somebody's going, somebody, somebody potentially somebody is. is thinking that. Right. If I look at, if I look at where our net worth is and I look at our loan to value across our real estate portfolio, we're sitting around 60%, right? So real estate prices, and that's just the real estate portfolio. That doesn't include our equities or our cash outside of that. Just the real estate portfolio is sitting about 65% loan to value. So we have a pretty substantial cushion mm-hmm. for our real estate, I think, right? And every home we buy, you, you guys know the rules in Vancouver. We're putting at least 20% equity into, in, into it to go. So I look at the amount of cash that we've put in. We should just live here, pay off the mortgage, retire early. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, I need... I need a yard. Like we have kids. Like you need to be able to play soccer in the backyard. Yeah. And so we. How many times did you play soccer? No. <laughs> like, like twice. We now have basketball in the backyard, and I'm, I'm playing with the big boy every day. But it's way better. But what ended up happening? We we sold the townhouse in Olympic Village. Big win. Had a lot of cash uh, available, which. You guys, we talked earlier before recording, you need when you're building a house. And so we bought, and and here's what killed us. It was 2016. So we talked about how frothy it was back then. You didn't put subjects in if you wanted a home. And so we bought in the middle of Mount Pleasant, like right in the middle, between Maine and Fraser, 20th. And it turned out the peat was pretty bad. Two doors over, they had been building. And our neighbor, their house shifted. And so anytime anyone went in with plans or drawings for our house, they would say, well, what are you going to do so this doesn't happen again and show them the house that had shifted in the middle? So we ended up, we have about a hundred piles in our yard. And we also had to do shotcrete for the sides. Usually you don't have to use shotcrete unless you're doing a commercial development. And then the amount of rebar and concrete that we had to have, we were 50% over time on that build. We had moved into a two-bedroom apartment. We were in it for three years (laughs) with two boys, (laughs) full family, and we were 50% over budget. So somewhere in there, the cash just started to run out, right? And I still remember... This was the the finale of the failure. You meet with your builder, and anytime the main guy's there, you yeah. know something. Wait, what are you doing wrong, here? <laughs> right? Like, why why, why is it just your construction manager, right? And they had come in with a pretty high landscaping <laughs> quote, and we were meeting with them because we thought they had got some wins, right? And then you see him, and you're like, oh shit, this isn't going to be wins today. And we went through every line. And they saved the concrete to the end. And they didn't have a win. It was 3x what the landscaper had said. Like he didn't know about the amount of rebar. Everything had to be tied into the house, had to be tied into the piles. We had to do more piles. So it went from X number to X plus. And I still remember he delivered that. I turned and looked at my wife. She looked at me, neither of us said anything, and you just saw, like, emotion pouring out of both of our eyes. 
It was silent for about a minute. And then our builder looked at the two of us and said, I'll leave you two alone with this. <laughs> and, and, and went uh, went outside. And the two of us, like, we couldn't talk. We just stayed silent. I called my parents. I was driving home that night. I went back to work. I was driving home and I just broke. Like, I called them. I'd been trying to stay strong for the family. And I just bawled. Like, I just thought everything we've built is gone. Yeah. Right? Like it had happened once we built back up. It just happened again. And that was 20, 2018, right? It was maybe even 2019. It was just before I'd, I'd put the pre-sales down on those uh, townhouses, which made that even more of a scramble. And we moved in December, 2019, three months later. COVID hit. And so, you know, biggest failure ever, but living in that house the last two and a bit years while we went through COVID, I mean, it was probably for our family, the best two years we've ever had. You know, it's a big failure financially. Yeah, Like it was like getting kicked in the gut over and over, but it worked out. And with the way the markets rebounded, we're slightly above water on that house. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. I, <laughs> so we're good. I actually moved, we we were building at the same time and I actually moved in in December of 2019 into our and house. And you also rented a two bedroom. I also uh, rented I feel a like two the bedroom. story is very similar. We could have saved so much money just going to the therapist together. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to think about it. But it was yeah, people underestimate building. And for us, it was funny because it was, we'd done a few kind of rental projects successfully. And then we just bit off way more than we could chew. And then it was like, if it bought a house that if you're going to move that painting, you might as well rebuild it kind of thing. Like it was just like, if you're going to do anything, rebuild. But I sympathize with that because I think a lot of people have gone through that. I called a good friend of mine who's in our industry who built a house in the main street corridor. And his advice to me was get ready to hemorrhage money. Like you never have ever before in your life. Like he's like, it's the most uneasy feeling ever. And he's like, and it just doesn't go away. Yeah. He's right. And someone I work for who I really respect, you know, I don't think he's saying it to pick on you, but he, anytime he's talking to someone who says, Oh, I'm going to build my house. He, he says like, you're going to be 50% over budget and you're going to be 50% longer than you expect. Yeah. And he was, he was actually exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and how much of it, I'm just curious, was this, uh, because I know with Adam's project it was kind of there there was a heritage component uh and a little bit more crying <laughs> yeah yeah and, and <laughs> well, i was there every step of the way watching going like, oh, man i'm never building a house how much was the peat because we've talked about the peat bog on the show we've had builders actually on talking about it it sounds like that was a fairly considerable component to to the challenges or the the overruns there? Yeah, I mean, there's a fair amount of, like, we're probably 10% over budget just on our own personal design decisions. Like, we were talking, and it's your own home. It's your forever home. You're going to get a bit of a better yeah. light fixture, but those are small numbers. So what it turned out was the P was one thing, but there was, like, a creek that ran through our yard so like even in the dead of summer, when they were digging to put the piles down, water oh would come God. out 
<laughs> and so you had to waterproof everything. Like I remember they're digging the holes for the piles, right? They're drilling down into the dirt. And the mud was shooting so high, it was landing on our neighbor's roof. So all of a sudden we had to pay for, you know, the structure, if you will, to tarp all of our neighbors' homes so we weren't spraying them you with had to mud. Scaffold Scaffolding. Your, we had to scaffold the neighbor's house. Yes, because we were covering oh. their we were covering their wall and their roof with mud. So they and you know, the the neighbor on one side had already had already shifted slightly. Yeah. And she'd already lived through no no fault to, of the of the people who were building there, right? It's just this happens with older homes and in this area. But you don't want to say, hey, we're also going to, over the next two months or three months, cover your home in, in dirt and mud. Right. So, we, yeah, we put up the scaffold and put up the tarps to uh, God. protect the mud shooting. The, the craziest thing is that we were building on a 25-footer in Strathcona, and the houses are so close together that my biggest fear was when we were excavating, we had to have a geotech keep, keep coming to the site, which I can't even, like, we had that, like, a few times during the the build, which I can't imagine having that like almost all the time. Because <laughs> like, I, like if I ever have to do life again, I'm going to come back as a geotech. But the crazy thing is that that idea of the house actually of oh, compromising your neighbor's yeah. house, right? Yeah. It's just so terrifying. Yeah. Um, and, and the bog, you know, it's funny. Well, it's not funny, but some people get away doing okay on the bog, but it's just such a, there's such a variation, right? With, with what you end up with and, and, uh, and what you have to do, right? It feels like some people even cheat, right? They dig the hole, they throw up the cinder blocks and then they go to the city. It's like, Hey, hole's yeah. dug. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, wait a second. You're only four doors down. Yeah. Man. You get away with that. Right, right. <laughs> so so, so sometimes it's better to, uh, Beg forgiveness than ask permission when you're doing that part of the part of the build. But yeah, yeah, it's a fun neighborhood. So I, w I would never build in a peat zone again. Like that is off the table. Off the table. In, in yeah. terms of, well, my wife would say we're never going to do this again. I would say we're never going to do it in a peat zone again. Yeah. But on the on the flip side to that, you're in like the epicenter of the city. Yeah, we such an awesome spot. We, yeah, it's it's like we we moved in and and you guys will get this with with your clients. The two houses on the corner, young families. Someone buys a cross, builds a house, young family. Two more houses got knocked down, new builds, young families. So all yeah. of a sudden you go from this street that had a lot of older people, no kids to all young families. Now, none of the kids have really got to play together because we've been COVID. So right, right. they don't even know what each other look like. <laughs> but we'll, as as this winds down, I hope, you know, knock on wood this spring and summer, maybe we'll be able to get to have one of those block parties right. where, where you get out, have a barbecue, get all the kids playing together, get to know the parents, have some drinks. It'll be good. Please God, make it so. <laughs> yeah. Right. One thing I wanted to talk about, and this is, you know, we've been, we've been trumpeting Kokomo for a while. And the idea of Kokomo, I think, as something happening in the future is, you know, everybody loves this idea of financial freedom and not having to work and being able to leave your job uh, if you desire. But when you actually think about it, and what got me thinking about this was I, you know, over a, a beer over the weekend was talking about, hey, maybe, I should go to, maybe we should go to Portugal for eight months. And I was like, no, I can't do that. That would be insane. It's off the table. Even though I 
You, like you a, took it off the table before your sober self even could realize <laughs> yeah, what it was. Yeah, yeah. I know what I was, but it really, it was, it was fear. It was yeah. fear of leaving yeah. the business for eight months, like yeah. our business or, you know, taking your hand off, off the wheel or the eye off the prize or whatever. I just want to hear about how you're thinking about kind of this Kokomo journey and, and what it looks like for you at the, at the end. Yeah, when you and I were talking about this earlier, Matt, we talked about the fact that there's a book, Super Coach, by Michael Neal. And one of the things he highlights is that no matter how much money someone has, they're worried that they don't have enough. So you could you could have a net worth of a billion dollars, and you're thinking in the back of your mind, what black swan event is going to wipe out everything I have? Like, I can't stop because somehow my money's going to run out. And maybe they have a really high lifestyle that could make that happen, but probably not. So you look at it and in, in you definitely have that fear. I definitely have that fear. And that's why I've designed it in the way where there's a couple things that could play out. One, I'm doing Kokomo and Pivot. So I'm not going to the beach and just chilling out for the next 60 years. I'll, I'll have some things I can make money off of, right? I feel reasonably certain I can make a certain amount of money when I hit go on that. So that's one thing. The second thing is I have a fallback option. So in the spreadsheet, I have the disaster plan B, which is kids are out of the house. They've moved on. They're in university. My wife says they can stay home. Difference in cultures. I come from the culture where you get the heck out of my house. Yeah. Um, but we'll see what happens there. But what we could do is we could sell the house, downsize, be mortgage-free, and pay off the mortgage on all the investment properties. That's the key. And so when we get to Kokomo plus four years, so I've got four or five years to take a shot at making it work. If I can't make it work and I'm in trouble, then I should be able to sell the house at the market value it'll be worth at that time, assuming a 3% appreciation rate between now and then, and pay off the debt on all the other investment properties. And then they're all cash flowing. Right. And then you've got eight cash flowing, seven cash flowing properties that are putting money in your jeans every month. Ideally, we don't have to sell the house and do that. But that gives me a little bit of comfort that as I get closer, I won't fear pulling the trigger at the date that I, I've talked about with my wife and, and talked about in the past with my boss. And so... That said, most people that I know that have approached that date, they start to get scared and they start to say, I don't think I can do it, right? And I think that's why you start to start to transition a number of years earlier. Even if it's, you know, where you say, well, it, it is going to be the full Kokomo lifestyle. Well, if that's the case, maybe go down to a four-day work week, then a three, then a two, then a one, and then all of a sudden you're not working. But to go from I'm charging hard five days a week. I'm in the office early. I'm staying late. And I'm going to go from that to nothing. Staring out the window, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, A, a lot of people die within two years yeah. of doing that. Yeah. So uh, I would never do that. But B, it's just, it, it's such an extreme. Right. right. So just easier way into it. You know, it's funny. One of the things I, I when we talk about uh, Kokomo and Matt going to Portugal, <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's and immediately take it off the table. Uh, we, I often think it's it's funny though because I mean I think a lot of we have a lot of boomers that listen to the podcast. We also have a lot of young people and and 
you're you're tempted to not want to make the mistakes boomers have made with retirement, right? I, I think there's this uh thing that scares me is I you you get to the certain number in your head perhaps and you're not ready to pull back or whatever whatever your your plan is. There's also that fear looming of you don't want to be traveling Europe in your seventies, right? With, you know, you know, go <laughs> with health concerns or, uh, you know, needing a, needing a, a washroom, uh, two steps from your bed kind of thing. Yeah. Like I don't it, know if that was a question, <laughs> 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 but you're right. Right. The average age for men is about 76 where we live. Right. And a lot of people don't retire till they're 65 or their late sixties. And then you have five or six maybe not great years to live like that just doesn't seem like what you want to do and that's why you know you start talking kokomo you talk about travel one of the components of the plan with my wife is if the kids are living their life everything that i talked about wanting to do when i'm retired in quotation marks as my best friend likes to say because i'll, I'll be quite busy but i can do it from anywhere in the world and the plan would be to live outside of this city for mm -hmm. at least six months of the year, ideally one country at a time and live there like as someone would if they were there right. for six plus months, right? So you're in Portugal, go there, live the culture, learn the language, spend the next six months in Italy, back in Vancouver, then to Italy, back to Vancouver, then Japan, right? Right. Live the world and continue to be able to generate income. Because what, what a lot of people really want from Kokomo is freedom, right? The freedom to do what you want, when you want, where you want, how you want. And so building your life to give you that freedom. Like you could go to Portugal because you have a business that could be paying you money while you're gone. Mm -hmm. So it's not impossible. Yeah, but I'm working twice as hard. <laughs> yes, yes. Which, may, which would mean he enjoys Portugal even more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is my Kokomo. Oh, man. All right, we got the five wire. I'm All in, right. I'm amped up for this. So question number one, Clint, what have you been binge watching lately? So I'm with you guys. I love Kevin Costner. So Yellowstone was there, getting more and more outlandish <laughs> by the day. Right? So that, that's uh, that's gone. Right now, you guys may have seen the Kanye or the Yee. Oh, we've been talking about uh, We've been watching that. Like, yeah, we're both astounding. obsessing. Yeah, yeah I'm kind of like, halfway through episode two, but it is... I'm it on is three so or four. Great. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm like at the uh, anthem listening parties of uh, uh, like uh, fa Father Handstretch or whatever. <laughs> I'm deep. I'm in the weeds. I'm in the weeds. Yeah, I got to watch one this weekend. Yeah. I, I finished episode two. But I mean, the fact that this guy went with him to New York in 1998 and filmed Crazy. his life, it, just nuts. It, the, yeah. the whole idea that that guy believed in Kanye almost as much as Kanye's mom believed in Kanye <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> is is incredible, right? Yeah, yeah. And to watch I, him when he brings his first album around, like I yeah. was filming my <laughs> filming my TV and sending out text messages of the videos, yeah. like Pharrell Williams just breaking out dancing, like just yeah. it's kind of incredible to watch. Uh, that's, a great, that's a great, that's a great recommendation yeah, I, so, that, so that's for sure yeah i it was funny when you realize as a parent of a, a two and a half year old i immediately the next day was like 
you're really great at this. You're so good. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I never do that. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, Donda. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this coincides with uh, the last answer, but what song has been on repeat lately? Uh, it does coincide. So my youngest son, uh, he's 10 and he now knows all the words to Jesus walks. <laughs> so that it's just like every time we're in the car, he's like, dad, turn Jesus walks on. Let's get, let's get the car let's started and do it. Yeah. So we start with that and then we work our way out. <laughs> uh, a, a book you would recommend for all of our listeners. Oh, number one book that I recommend to people. And it really was the driver of most of this journey. So it was after reading this book that my life uh, completely had a, a 360 in every single way. So it's Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy by Dr. Burns. And it really just teaches you to shut off the inner critic or, you know, if someone has a more active the, like meditation, the, the monkey mind. Cognitive uh, behavioral Cogn therapy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then that led to, because cognitive behavioral therapy came from stoicism. So then that led me down that path as a rabbit hole. Wow. Yeah. Oh, feeling good. Feeling good, the new mood therapy. And there's a new book called Feeling Great. I uh, haven't read it, but great sounds better than good. So We both coincidentally <laughs> bought it in December of 2019. <laughs> 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 One piece of advice you would give your 18-year-old self, I guess, apart from building a house on the bog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't build a house on the bog. Uh, so for sure, it would be buy more real estate sooner and never sell it. Simple <laughs> and effective. Uh, last but not least, something that you've purchased for under $1,500 lately that's had a positive impact on your life. And I, before the show, we talked about maybe increasing this amount. So anything that you've bought recently? No, it, it was under that amount. I was joking that I, I think I remember when it used to be like uh, under 500 bucks and then yeah. it was a thousand and then it was 15. Yeah. The, uh, was the, we talked about it a little with podcast equipment. So it was the Rodecast Pro. Like it's just out of this world. You're able to do your podcast with your computer, but you can also hook it up to your phone via Bluetooth so you can do social audio media rooms, whether that's Clubhouse or on Twitter spaces. So your ability to use it across multiple mediums is phenomenal. And the sound and the quality, like it's it's definite great addition to the podcast booth at home. It's interesting because we've been on this Zoom 6 forever now, for six years. And, 2016. Uh, yeah, 2016. And when I bought this at the time, the guy was like, oh, the H6 is is the best. Like just don't even think twice by this. And now I've had like four or five people tell me about uh, the Procaster, right? Yeah, the yeah, Pro, Pro, Procaster. Yeah, Procaster, yeah, which is, uh, which is awesome. So, hey, maybe it will be the best thing we uh, spent uh, under $1,500 on soon. Yeah, but Clint, uh, I think somebody out there and maybe many, many people are wanting to hear more about where they can find out more about your podcast, get sure. your spreadsheets. Yeah. You can hit me up on coachclint.com and I am under that handle on Twitter or you can find uh, The Pursuit of Learning on any podcast platform we're on Spotify, Apple and everything else and it's straight on the website so you can also find it there. Awesome. Well, hey, it's uh, it's been a great, we, we ran long today but uh, 
the content was so good we just had to keep yeah, going. Yeah, so we'll thanks have to have for you taking back. the time. We'll have to have you back. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks, guys. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Clint Murphy, host of the Pursuit of Learning podcast and real estate investor. Man, I'm not surprised. I was excited to talk to Clint, but yeah. uh, that was a great conversation. It's amazing how bringing people into Kokomo Studios right. is- Changes the dynamic. It just changes the dynamic. I and, feel it's so hard to, and it, and I think this is what companies and everybody will have to to deal with, but- Zoom, there's very few things that can, nothing really can replace being in, in person in a studio or a boardroom having a conversation. Yeah. And that's exactly it, right? I mean, we've had a lot of phone interviews over the last 18 months that have been great. But really, the energy of just being in the studio, lots of laughs, lots of energy, and just awesome having, having Clint in the studio. Yeah, yeah, no, it was great. And uh, man, a couple things that just stick out as unique. One that kind of discussion about getting closer to Kokomo and the fear that it's said yeah. about Kokomo, right? I uh, think the pursuit of Kokomo is, you know, there's nothing, I mean, there's a lot of things that are hard about the pursuit of Kokomo, but in terms of mental anguish, there's right. nothing hard about the pursuit of Kokomo, but getting closer to Kokomo is kind of an interesting concept, especially if you're on the younger side. And also when you guys basically had to hug it out in terms of your builds, that yeah. was uh, a big cry fest. I feel like you guys really bonded. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, it was emotional. It was an emotional journey that three minutes talking about the build process. <laughs> I, uh, well, I don't know. Stick you know, me. like when you have a moment like that and you almost just can't see the person again, well, it's the like, that might just be, that was just. Clint, I just might I just might never be able to see him again yeah. after that cry. Well, the one thing about it is it's kind of, I mean, you guys timed the builds, like everything it's almost about like it. we were working tandem. I know. I know. <laughs> it's kind of incredible. But uh, yeah, it was great conversation. So many takeaways. So many takeaways. And I'm kidding, of course. I hope to see Clint again really uh, real hope soon. hope to have him back on the show. I'd love to have him back on the show. The other thing that was uh, a, a big takeaway for me was I, I was working from the office and I was basically, Clint was in like a beautiful suit, like handmade somewhere. Oh, right. Yeah. It was you like, were, you were in your like, you know, the, I was like you a were casual like, Friday. You were looking like, uh, like a, you know, like a banana Republic model. <laughs> can I, can you I were give looking you like Christopher Montesanti, like in a track suit. I came in in like a garbage bag <laughs> and it was like the craziest, like, the, and he was like, it was, yeah, it was jarring. Like, it was yeah. jarring how underdressed I was for this interview with, uh, Clint, the guy's but, a chief financial officer. Yeah. And I, mean, I and he, he walks comes, in from a meeting and he was like, sorry, I think I got the wrong office. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was there was a moment there where he almost uh, turned around. He walked in and basically almost, almost walked out. Yeah, that's one of the benefits of the phone interviews. Yeah. I think. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, because I I don't dress for success. <laughs> Let's be clear. <laughs> if there's one thing you don't do. No, <laughs> I'm athleisure. Uh, but what else? Uh, what else do we have for the day, Adam? Yeah, what else do we have for the day? Of course, we have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Oh, and you know what? I should say VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is of course our website where all things real estate related live, including the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast, which I just want to, I know we've been plugging the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We, this last week, I did an interview with Corey Wright on the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast with the mayor of Langford. Yeah. Okay. This is an incredible episode. And I know we've been saying that about a lot of the episodes. The mayor of Langford, who's been the mayor since the 90s, and his approach to governance, it's incredible. It's, it's wow. such a breath of fresh air. 
If you do one thing this week, other than listen to this show, check out the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. It lives at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, of course, as well. We also have the live wire. We're getting VIP access to residential pre-sales, commercial pre-sales. We got deal of the month. We got stats before anyone else. There's no reason why you don't want to be on the live wire list. So sign up at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And we also have private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. It's available at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. You got to sign up for your PCS account because it is the best way to look for real estate in Vancouver. Anything else we got for the week? I'm just, I'm going to last but not least, send people to Instagram. Please, if you like the podcast, share it with a friend. We just got a review on Google. Yeah, uh, which this was week nice. was kind of out of the blue. It's a nice uh, feeling. A nice five-star review, which was nice. Honestly, if you like what we're doing, we want to hear from you. And uh, thank you for being part of the VREP community. And thank you for growing with us and uh, helping us grow. Absolutely. And, uh, Matt, how can people get in touch with you? 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line. I feel like we should just give out Clint's email address. Oh, Matt, but, hey, uh, but hang on one sec. Just to, sorry to cut you off, but we also should just quickly mention Wilson Wong, VREP listener from Alberta who actually just closed on, I think, like almost $3 million worth of commercial real estate inspired from Vancouver Commercial Real Estate so, Podcast. So it's kind of amazing. He sent gifts to us just as a thanks for, for doing the show. He started listening four months ago. He completed on his first commercial real estate transaction of $3 million. And now he's he's uh, closing in on something like $14 million. <laughs> A $14 million transaction with some partners. This Just is incredible. all happening very quickly. Speaking of Kokomo, Wilson Wong in the future, I think, is is somebody we should have on. He's well but, on his um, way. But yeah, just an incredible story there. And yeah, thank you so much for that gift. That was, it was, it was, it was, it was sharp. It was very sharp. Yeah. And uh, we also have that Kokomo line. Info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Thanks, everyone. And yeah, we've got more episodes in the can here that are fantastic. So we'll see you next week. Yeah, and I'll see you in two weeks, but uh, take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.